you and I live in a world with fixed laws. We can see space programs, uh, other enterprises of men, and the reality is because of the consistency in this universe, knowing that things will be and function as they were designed to do, that we can then relate to it accordingly. Obviously, our space program very effectively uh, accomplished great things because of the movement of different heavenly bodies and knowing that exactly, precisely where they would be. There is a relative temporal truth. There are fixed laws. And when individuals either ignore or do not comply with that law, there are certain consequences that come to those individuals. Uh, without any doubt, we know how if we do not recognize and we do not operate within the realm of the law of gravity, the consequences that one might experience would be to plummet to one's death because of a failure to comply with that natural truth, the consequences that we realize. In the same way, driving a vehicle. We recognize when we're turning corners, there's the reality of centrifugal force and how gravity and speed, etc., all need to be appropriately uh, recognized, complied with, if we are to safely navigate to our destination. And when we don't, we find we're off the side of the road into a ditch or maybe even something far worse. Yes, you and I live in a world with fixed natural laws. We don't deny the fact that God cannot at times change those laws, but for the most part, they are operational, and we all need to operate within those fixed laws or face consequences accordingly. There's also the recognition that there are laws in our moral and spiritual aspect of being as well. Even in our physical being, you know, if we do not take in the right type of nutrition, our body suffers. It has certain needs that must be met. And how often we find that some sicknesses, diseases, and physical problems that people have are based upon either a poor diet, an inappropriate diet, or not ingesting the right things. Some things are poisonous to our system, and ingesting them can bring about serious illness or even death. I have to operate within those fixed laws, within that truth, or I suffer the consequences. We see patterns of life uh, styles that people have. And if they don't operate in a pattern of lifestyle that is for their well-being, there are consequences that they will experience. And so often individuals who have been living in a certain way and have the consequences that come to them are sometimes surprised, even may question, why is this happening to me? When the reality is they haven't functioned in appropriate accordance with the things that are necessary for our mental well-being, our spiritual well-being, our physical well-being, and we suffer the consequences. 
In the very same way, we find in the Bible that God says clearly to us that if we are deviating from his truth, there are consequences that will come. A man reaps what he sows. And in the same way, we find as the Lord Jesus, speaking to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, has things for us to comprehend and understand regarding the well-being of an individual Christian or the well-being of a local church based upon its relationship and its function within accordance to God's truth. Therefore, it has great importance and relevance for all of us. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. And as you are doing so, please remember that the idea of a revelation is a disclosure. And this is the disclosure that is coming from Jesus Christ himself. The book obviously will give us information about him and his glory, but he says particularly that this was the disclosure that was to be given to his bond servants about things that were to come. And as we look at this message given by Jesus Christ, even given directly to the Apostle John, commanded in chapter 1 to write the things which he has seen and the things that are going to yet take place, we find that Jesus Christ had a message specifically for seven churches in Asia Minor. Verse 11 of chapter 1. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And Christ even made it clear as far as the structural divisions of the book of Revelation, as is recorded for us in chapter 1, verse 19, where again he addresses John and says, Write therefore the things which you have seen which in reality is Revelation chapter 1. The things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. And Christ uh, gives us that uh, final division as we find in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 where John says, after these things I looked and behold. And so the division, the things which John had already seen, chapter 1, the things which are the seven churches and their condition, and the things which shall come after these things in chapters 4 to the end of the book. As we look at the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, we find that Christ has a message to each one of them. And we also need to recognize a correspondence that we have to the churches that were selected by Jesus Christ. What we find is, is that from a biblical standpoint, uh, the number seven refers to a completeness. Just as we had mentioned before, we have seven days that make up a week. And seven is the idea symbolically in the scripture of 
completeness. And so Christ selected seven churches in Asia Minor. These were not the only churches in Asia Minor. In fact, down the road from Ephesus, down the road from Laodicea, was a church to whom another letter was written, uh, the city of Colossae and the letter of Colossians. Christ specifically selected these historical seven churches, and they became... Uh, a message, a complete message to the church. Now, I don't want to go back through a discussion on how people have interpreted this complete picture of the church, other than to remind you that from the standpoint of what we're looking at from uh, my perspective, these seven churches represented a complete picture of the church in apostolic days, in the time in which John written. And so be it that I was the church in Antioch or I was the church in Rome or I was the church somewhere else, the things that Christ is saying to these seven churches were pertinent to me as well. And from that, I take it to be true of every generation and every period of the church until the time in which Christ calls the church to himself in the rapture. Therefore, we're looking at a historical representative period. So in our day, these seven churches provide us with a complete picture of the condition of the church and what is taking place within our local assembly as well as in other local assemblies uh, throughout the city and the world. I think it's also valid for us to remember that this message is given directly by the head of the church, the one who has received all authority from the Father, and he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is the one who is speaking to his disciples in our day, in our generation, through these seven churches. And as he does so, he provides us with encouragement, he provides us with cautions, he provides us with an ability to comprehend what is happening either to us individually, to us corporately as a local church, or to the church in different parts of the world. What we find in each of the letters, he basically first identifies himself. He usually has, not always, but usually has something to which he commends the church. And then, but I have this against you. Not in all of the seven churches, but in some of them, something that is awry, amiss, a warning. He is condemning them for something that is not appropriate. And then provides them with counsel and correction as to what they should do. As we looked at the church at Ephesus, we saw that he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. In other words, he is the one who empowers, enables the messengers to the churches as he explained the mystery of what that represented in verse 20 of chapter one, and he is in the midst of his people. And what we saw in the church letter given to Ephesus, that while they were very zealous, they were doctrinally sound, they were actively engaged in ministry, their problem was the problem that they had left their first love. And what we saw is that it is possible for us to become so busy in ministry 
that we fail to recognize what is really most needful is growing in our relationship with the Lord. It is growing in our love, admiration, worship, and devotion to the one who has redeemed us to God. In uh, the example that we use in ways for us to remember, you have Mary and Martha both busy taking care of all the things that were essential for those who had come with Christ and were gathered in their home. And in the midst of it, Mary sits down at the feet of Christ. And Christ made it very clear to Martha that she was encumbered about by many things. There were so many things that weighed her down and occupied her, but she's neglected what is really most essential. And Mary, on the other hand, has chosen the better part. And what is that? To sit at the feet of Christ, to listen to him, to worship and adore him, cultivating the relationship with him. And you and I need to realize that if the evil one cannot divert our attention into things that are a discredit to our Savior, he can get us so busy in the work of the Lord that we tend to lose that special precious time with the person of the Lord. Now the caution that he gives us for our study today really found in two churches in the church at Pergamum, verse 12, and to the church at Thyatira in verse 18 in chapter 2. And as we look at these two churches, what we find is basically the caution that is given has to do with a perversion of truth. Both of these locations were noted for their wealth Both of these locations, Pergamum and Thyatira, were noted for the uh, concentration of pagan worship, of temples dedicated to the manufactured false gods of the Roman day. And in the church at Pergamum, notice how Christ identifies himself in chapter 2, verse 12, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. And then how he identifies himself to the church at Thyatira. He is God the Son, the Son of God. He has eyes like flames of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. In each of these letters, Christ will choose a designation of himself that had already been disclosed to John in chapter 1 that is most appropriate for the message that is being delivered to the church and into the church at Pergamum as well as to the church at Thyatira. What Christ has used to designate himself is the fact that he is the one that is displeased with this perversion of truth. He is the one who is the divine being, who is the judge of all, who can penetrate and see through the outward facade, and he is bringing about that judgment of God. His legs are like burning bronze and is trampling out the vintage of God's judgment. And so to these two churches in the warning 
there is a recognition that he is not pleased with what is taking place and he is telling them that there is a need for them to address it. In the church at uh, Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell, verse 13, where Satan's throne is because of the many temples that were dedicated to false gods. And in to the church at Thyatira, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance. They were hanging in there in the midst of persecution and affliction. And your deeds of late are greater than at first. They were maturing in the faith. They were doing that which was pleasing to God. They were manifesting more of God's character in their relationships with one another and in their witness to the world. But, verse 14, I have a few things against you. Verse 20, but I have this against you. The problem had to do with a perversion of the truth. And to better understand it, what is it that he emphasizes? Well, to the church at Pergamum, notice he says, of the few things I have against you, there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Verse 15, thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so we begin to see in this discussion given by Christ to the church at Pergamum, we'll see the same thing to the church at Thyatira, that there is a differentiation that is being made. While it is a message addressed to the church, Christ does not indiscriminately say, well, everything's bad with you or everything's good with you. You have some who hold. You have some who tolerate. It is a recognition that there are different levels of maturity, different levels of spiritual reality within the individuals who make up the local congregation. And even today in ministry, we are greatly amiss if we assume just because everybody gathers together on Sunday and everybody is making a declaration that they're a Christian, that all is well with them. No, the ministry needs to be specifically and discriminatory uh, today, just as it was as Christ uh, held this out to them. Now, when we look at the church in Pergamum, he says, first, you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, interestingly enough, if you want to study back to the idea of the teaching of Balaam, it would have to do with the fact that he was an individual who, in a sense, sold his spiritual abilities or talents for financial remuneration. When he was commissioned by Balak to go and um, curse Israel, uh, he said, even if you would give me up to half of your kingdom, I wouldn't be able to do it. But he still went because he was motivated by benefiting personally, financially, from his spiritual abilities. I think today it's very clear to see there are individuals who follow this way of Balaam as is described by Peter 
in Second uh, P- Peter, where he says in verse 15 of chapter 2, individuals who are false teachers have forsaken the right way. They've gone astray and followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And so it is using God to gain something for oneself. And sadly, we have a number of shysters who in the name of Christ are really promoting themselves by the way in which they utilize spiritual things for their own temporal and financial benefit. In that regard, we find that there is a warning that Christ has given, and he's not pleased with it any more than he was pleased with the fact that money changers had placed themselves in the temple and they were fleecing the flock in order to benefit themselves. And so what we have is the reality of that warning. But the other has to do with not so much the way of Balaam, but here it says the teaching of Balaam. And the teaching of Balaam, and we can find all of this recorded in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 25 in particular, was the reality that he was not able to curse Israel because they were an entity blessed by God. But he encouraged Balak to try to intervene or intermarry and interrelate with them, and in so doing... Israel would bring God's judgment upon themselves because they were uh, designated by God to remain a distinct people and not to follow the practices of the nations around them. They weren't to take the women of those nations that they were conquering to be their own wives. They weren't to give their daughters to the men of those nations to Uh, Mary, because in doing so, in their practice, they would compromise their walk with the Lord. And so when we look at what was happening in uh, Pergamum, we find there was a compromise in conjunction with their practice. Instead of being distinct and remaining uh, separated, They were compromising. And that stumbling block, he says in verse 14, was to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. And then he says, in the same way, you have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, this group, the Nicolaitans, is somewhat hard for us to determine exactly who they are. But the reality is that two key things come up about them as they are Um, things about them are preserved in extra-biblical literature. They are an individuals who began to lord it over the people. It means conquering the people is the basic meaning of the name Nicolaitans. And they established a hierarchy, a clergy that was separated from and distinct from the common people or what we today would call the lay people. And in that regard, they um, used their position to gain benefit for themselves. But even more 
problematic was the fact that this group was known for a licentious way of living. In other words, a perversion of grace, a perversion of grace. Paul warned about that in the book of Romans where he says that individuals uh, slanderously report and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. And those individuals, he says, their condemnation is just. Grace can be perverted to practice, uh, into our practice of licentiousness. It doesn't matter how we live, we're covered by grace. We're covered by the blood. And the reality is God's people are commanded while they are in the world to still be separated from the world. Uh, We know far too well that some have taken it to extremes where they look at manners of dress or that they don't utilize some of the technological benefits that we have, but he's really talking more about the reality of our lifestyle and what we do. I have the benefit of, as a Christian, having Christian liberty and freedom to become all things to all men, as Paul would say, that by all means I might win some. But it doesn't mean I actually participate in their activities. Now when Paul said, or excuse me, when John wrote down that Jesus says they eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality, he is looking at the uh, fact that they would actually involve themselves in the pagan worship practices. Paul, when he talked to the Corinthians, said, you know, that these pagan practices are distinctly different from walking with Christ. And there is no companionship. There is no partnership with the deeds of false gods and the worship of false gods and the deeds of the Christian and the worship of the Christian. Everyone in that community, when they went to the butcher block, which was on the backside of the temple, was buying the excess of meat that was part of the sacrifice offered to the pagan god. And we find in the scripture that if a person had a clear conscience, there was nothing wrong from the individual eating those things, even though initially they had been part of the offering that was given to that false god. No, eating the things sacrificed to idols engaged in immorality were these great immoral love feasts that took place in conjunction with the worship of false gods. They were to be separated from it. But the teaching of Balaam caused the Moabites to intermarry with the Israelites and brought condemnation on them. And in that day, the Nicolaitans and those like them encouraged these uh, false practices as a perversion of grace. And please notice when it comes to this type of mindset, as Christ made it very clear, writing to the church at um, Ephesus, verse 6, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He takes no pleasure in it. So the perversion of truth has to do with a failure to understand that godly living does not mean perverting grace. 
and that while we're in the world, we don't associate with those things that discredit our God or are displeasing to him and ultimately harmful to ourselves. Then to the church at Thyatira, where he says to them, the problem is that you um, tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And so we find that it becomes a problem where the outworking is still the same, associated with the pagan practices and participation in them and therefore displeasing to the Lord. Now, whether this woman's name was actually Jezebel, we don't know, but we do know symbolically and figuratively what is being communicated as Christ makes use of this reference of this prophetess who was part of the church in Thyatira. Jezebel was the wife of Ahab in the northern kingdom of Israel. And through Ahab, via Jezebel, there was a replacement of the revealed worship of God that God had given through Moses with the pagan practices of the worship of Baal, Baal. Confronted by the prophet Elijah and a demonstration of the impotence of Baal, and the inappropriateness to tolerate the worship of Baal when it's the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, that is to be true of God's people. And so it was an indoctrination by Ahab and Jezebel of the northern tribes that this is an acceptable way for us to worship. And so what we have in compromise here is a compromise with revealed truth itself. And so when we find the church at Pergamum, their problem is the fact that there was a compromise in Christian living and in practice. And with the church at Thyatira, it was a tolerance of false doctrine. You and I need to think just how significant that might be. You know, today we have groups that try to make sure there's purity in our water and purity in our air and everything about us. And, you know, we sit there and think of our physical well-being and we recognize that we're not really too happy with drinking water polluted with lead or some other contaminant. You know, just think about this. Just how much rat poison would you be willing to have in a glass of water and to still drink it? I don't know about you, but I don't want any in there. And here is the need for our vigilance as well. We need to be sure we're not tolerant of false doctrine. Now, obviously, sometimes people can go overboard in that regard. And if you don't agree with me, then you must be wrong. When the reality is we're all growing in our understanding of God's absolute truth. 
But all things need to be tested by the scripture. It is sola scriptura that is appropriate and important for God's people. And so they were tolerating falsehood. And therefore it was inappropriate for God's people. And here we see the admonition that is given to us. That for us today in the same way. The scripture must be our final authority. And embracing its truth, evaluating teachings by it, and if things do not line up with it, rejecting it. Rejecting it. Christ graciously said, I gave her time to repent, but she's continuing in it. So he is going to come and exercise judgment because the church was failing to realize the value and the importance of God's truth. I think it's relevant for us to remember that not only through Christ do we learn about the compromise that can come to individuals through an ignorance of, neglect of God's truth, but Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy of the false teachers who would come and have a form of godliness but deny its power. But instead for him, you continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Peter, in his letter, 2 Peter, warned about false teachers who would come and again reminding us that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Jude, in the same way, in that short little epistle where he said, I wanted to just talk to you about our common salvation, but I needed to instead recognizing this insidious influence of falsehood to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So what's the perspective that we need to have as we look at these things from Christ? Well, as God's people, we need to be known for our undivided devotion and love to Christ and to realize that an undivided devotion to Christ is also seen in our undivided devotion to his word. And when there is compromise regarding it, there are practices of immorality that are displeasing to God and bring his judgment upon those who profess to be his people. That's why when Paul wrote to the churches in Galatea, he said, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will also reap. But also he provides us with words of encouragement. Verse 17, to the one who overcomes, I will give him the hidden manna, that bread of life, Christ himself, to be nourished by him. To the one who overcomes, church at Thyatira, verse 26, who keeps my deeds till I come, I will give him 
authority over the nations, just as I have received authority from my Father. The expectation of participating with Christ in his coming kingdom and receiving from him the commendation for walking faithfully with him by his grace in this world. You and I live in a world of truth, and when we fail to comply with it, of consequences that are not pleasant. And in the same way, spiritually, if we don't comply with God's truth, there are consequences that come to us that are personally harmful to our well-being, but even more so, bring discipline and judgment from our God. Let's pray.